Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks everyone for joining us in our community pharmacy podcast. We discuss topics relevant to the advancement of community-based pharmacy workforce, business, practice, and our profession. My name is Tom Wadsworth, and today we'll be chatting with the experts who are on the cutting edge of advancing the roles of community pharmacy practitioners, particularly out here in the West. Our guests for this episode are Dr. Zach Roscoe, Director of Pharmacy and Care Teams with Neighborhood Health Center in Portland, Oregon. We have Dr. Andrew Hibbard, Ambulatory Care Clinical Coordinator and Clinical Pharmacy Liaison at Care Oregon Health Plan. We also have with us Dr. Brandy Signamartin, the Alaska Pharmacist Association Executive Director, and Dr. Nikki Chopsky, the Executive Officer of the Idaho State Board of Pharmacy. And then finally, we have Dr. Debbie Marchetti, Assistant Clinical Professor at Idaho State University College of Pharmacy. She's also the Chief Pharmacist at ISU Pharmacist Clinic and the PGY1 Community-Based Residency Director. So we have an excellent group today to speak about community practice and practice transformation. In today's conversation, we will explore several topics related to existing advancements in community pharmacy practice, barriers and opportunities in implementing and innovating those services, and we'll hear from our experts on some of their success stories, their advice about how they could help you advance your practice where you are. Let's start with our first topic, and welcome everyone. Um, Our first topic is really around legislative and advocacy efforts. What legislative and advocacy efforts have paved the way for community pharmacy practitioners to provide healthcare services in the community setting? And we first want to hear from Dr. Chopsky about what they're doing in Idaho. Thanks, Dr. Wadsworth. Yeah, Idaho has actually had quite a long history. I think we started with our original collaborative practice agreements, which led to pharmacists being involved in drug therapy management in the late 90s. But more recently, what has really launched this into the community setting is uh, some legislative efforts that have come through in Idaho that allow pharmacists to independently prescribe based on a set of principles or guidances from our uh, legislature and the transition to a standard of care model of regulation. So a couple of things that that allows I just would touch on would be assessments and drug utilization plans, monitoring and evaluating uh, medication regimens, ordering and interpreting labs. Actually, we've had this on the record since 2016. We've changed some of our rules through the COVID days and, and into the future for refilling a prescription, adaptation of a prescription, therapeutic interchange. We now have independent prescribing for all of our pharmacists in Idaho, and that's even going to include uh, the controlled substances related to MAT with the recent reduction of the X waiver, removal of the X waiver. And so we're really excited about uh, these efforts that have been made in Idaho to allow pharmacists and communities to really be the go-to person for their patients to get access to safe medications. That is a lot to unpack there. And there, you probably heard Dr. Chopsky talk about a lot of things that have been in our discussions about community pharmacy for many, many years. You heard prescribing, monitoring, assessing, uh, ordering labs, independent prescribing in particular. That's quite novel, isn't it, for the United States? 
It is. We were one of the first states to do it. These things are being done in other jurisdictions, but we were one of the first states to do it completely independently. But now there are states across the country that are starting to dabble in some of this. We've seen it in Colorado. Um, I know Alaska, Dr. Signa Martin can speak to what's happening in Alaska. I know Montana has some legislation pending. I've talked to Georgia about some opportunities they're looking at there. So it is starting to kind of wave, be maybe a little cresting of a wave. But yeah, it it started with Idaho, I think. And we really um, modeled after some of what we were seeing Canadian pharmacists be able to do in some of the provinces, some of what we saw being done in Australia and the UK, and um, even what was being done here in the United States under collaborative practice. And then we just thought through that a little bit. And with the studies and the literature, figured out that we really didn't need that standing order or that collaborative practice agreement to do some of this prescribing that's really meant to take care of those who are coming into community pharmacies and uh, maybe don't have a primary care provider or after hours and on weekends when their primary care provider is not available. And that's exciting stuff. And maybe that's a good a good time to pivot to Washington and Alaska. Dr. Signa Martin, the executive director for the Alaska Pharmacists Association, also familiar with Washington law. Maybe you could give us a review of what's going on in those states. I know there's been some recent changes. Yes, and thank you for having me here today. So, you know, Washington state really has had the scope of practice framework in place for quite a long time. They've had really broad population-based collaborative practice agreements since 1979, under which they can prescribe. And actually, it was decided by the attorney general in Washington state back in 2019 or 2020 that even under those agreements, they can actually diagnose. So, which really just was a confirmation of what pharmacists were doing um, across all settings. So really they've had that scope of practice framework, but in 2015, they were one of the first states to pass the state level provider status for commercial payers. So the Washington State Pharmacy Association, you know, they worked really hard on that, advocating um, to get that across the finish line. And then I know we talk a lot about the advocacy piece, which is incredibly important to get the policies in place, but then also implementation is so, so key and advocating to implement these different policies and get them into practice is is super important. We actually also have had collaborative practice agreements for some time in Alaska, but then last year in 2022, we passed House Bill 145 which clarified our scope of practice authority around point of care testing, prescribing of vaccines and management of chronic disease states, as well as that other big piece making the sustainable um, required insurers to reimburse pharmacists for their patient care services. So that's been a really, really awesome effort. And we're obviously It's been less than a year since that's been passed. So we're in the early kind of phases of implementation as far as that goes. And actually, I will put in a plug on an ASHP state affiliate legislative call. The ASHP government affairs team called this the bill of the year last year. So big kudos to our entire team in Alaska who made that happen. And really, those advocacy efforts were a strong partnership between the Pharmacy Association our UAA ISU doctor of pharmacy program and the board of pharmacy. So really working together um, with those three entities and Dr. Wadsworth was actually a huge um, person bringing that together was how we made that happen because it's, it's hard to make change without all of those people being, being a part of it. And then I will also just go on to add that we actually have 
now we have several pharmacies across the state that are working to get set up on an EHR and do the credentialing and contracting. And so we've had a project here in Alaska, the Set Em Up Project, the Sustainable Education and Training Model under Pharmacist Provider Reimbursement, which is a CDC 18 grant funded project that's a partnership between the association and the UAISU Doctor of Pharmacy program that's been instrumental in the education, training, and implementation supports. Thanks, Dr. Sigmar Knight. What I'm hearing is a theme about scope of practice, scope of practice reform, what Dr. Chopsky covered and what's going on in Washington and Alaska, but also very important is the reform that comes with payment and making sure that there are ways to get reimbursed for these services in community pharmacy for offering these. Can I ask um, in Washington, and maybe this is a good time to, to pivot to Dr. Roscoe. Dr. Roscoe has a lot of experience on the billing side of it, and maybe you could speak to the scope of practice in Oregon, but focus primarily on how you've been able to get sustainable reimbursement in place for community pharmacies. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Wadsworth. So in Oregon, we've actually had for quite a long time, pharmacists recognized as an eligible provider under Oregon's Medicaid General Medical Services Division rules and under the associated Medicaid, FQHC, and Rural Health Clinic, the RHC service rules. So pharmacists had been recognized as encounter providers and eligible Medicaid providers who could be reimbursed for a long time in Oregon. And that primarily came about a long ways back uh, when Oregon was uh, working on its rules to allow for community pharmacies to assist in medication therapy management for the Medicaid population. There hasn't been any barrier in place necessarily to prohibit pharmacists from billing other than those MTM service codes at the time or other payers. But we did have a series of legislative efforts that led to both an expanded recognition of the ability to bill under different health plans to expand our scope of practice and later down the line, some mandates for coverage. So I can't remember exactly how many years back, I think about six, eight years back, we did have a uh, legislative session where we passed for scope of practice advancement. Uh, There was the creation of what's in Oregon called the Public Health and Pharmacy Formulary Advisory Committee. It's a multi-professional group organized by the Board of Pharmacy that helps create two separate areas of independent prescribing for pharmacists, protocol-based, state protocol-based prescribing, and then formulary-based prescribing. During the same legislative session, I believe it was, we also amended the state insurance code to add a pharmacist services division to indicate that commercial payers and then Medicaid payers just calling out that they can reimburse for pharmacist services. Later down the line in subsequent sessions, we actually had uh, some rules that went into place and modified again the pharmacist services division in the commercial insurance code that mandated coverage for pharmacist services in specific prescribing instances. So not all pharmacist services, um, but if a pharmacist is prescribing under an authority granted by the board of pharmacy and it's a service covered by the commercial payer, they would have to reimburse it. And we made sure to make the language such that we get reimbursed the same way other medical providers uh, get reimbursed. So that would be with evaluation and management codes. And the intent there is that it's essentially the same rates and methodology they're using for other medical providers. I will say we've talked about Idaho's uh, scope of practice, which is very broad and expansive, and their independent prescribing is quite broad. 
in Oregon, uh, as I mentioned, are independent prescribing. We had a few small bills that went through at various times to allow naloxone prescribing, to allow contraceptive prescribing. And then with this formulary advisory committee, they've created a couple of uh, protocols, uh, vulva vaginal candidiasis, cough and cold, symptom management, some H, uh, some other preventative services. But in general, it's very limited what we can independently perform. And Board of Pharmacy in Oregon has not, and the formulary committee have not had the appetite to add actual drugs to the formulary, which pharmacists can prescribe from without a protocol. They've rejected most essentially all submissions or requests to add drug classes or broad prescribing to that formulary. And right now there's only devices in the formulary. So Oregon initially put in a couple of additional uh, authorities, but it's been a slow creep forward since that point. And there hasn't been the appetite, unfortunately, to have more broad prescribing. We also have had collaborative drug therapy management uh, protocols or authorities in place, though it's a little bit different than how a lot of other states recognize that, where it's a delegation of authority to the pharmacist and the pharmacist can then prescribe. It is in Oregon viewed as a essentially a standing order and the pharmacist is acting as an agent of the referring or authorizing provider. And they generate a prescription under that provider's name rather than the pharmacist actually prescribing. Yeah. Sounds like we've gotten to the the point or the the space where pharmacists can provide healthcare and and in that including prescribing but we've got there in different ways and uh but the end result is that we've now opened up community pharmacy to offer healthcare services that are meaningful and helpful to people sounds like we've got some work to do to you know bring down some more barriers to access but maybe this is a good time to pivot over and speak specifically about what kinds of healthcare services we're actually actually talking about that are appropriate in the in the community setting and actually there's a need and for that let's let's turn to Dr. Debbie Marchetti and can you tell us you know in your experiences and based on what we've just heard from on the advocacy and regulatory stance what types of advanced services or or healthcare services are being offered in the community setting thank you Dr. Wadsworth you know when i talk about what can be offered i like to put an emphasis before i start naming you know, the the opportunities themselves on the fact of why we have to offer a lot of these services. And, and so as we go through them, I think it's important to think about the need and whether or not um, some of this care is being offered up to quality level that is necessary to really be fulfilling, taking care of the patient population out there. And so, you know, I, I like to start with some of the topics that the Idaho Board of Pharmacy allowed for us, such as, uh, you know, any need that's determined to be timely or accessible treatment for a low-risk patient. So that's some of the things that uh, Dr. Roscoe mentioned, you know, those um, treating for a UTI or, you know, cold sore or hormone contraception, you know, those are low-risk patients and, and really just having access to care in and of itself um, provides such a bridge, whether it be in those populations that are rural, whether it's those populations that have insurance or financial access, and even the big deductibles and co-pays that there are nowadays, you know, having services like that 
we actually in, have written, well, I, I myself have written about 22 protocols. And so, you know, you can add in there, you know, sunburn and bug bites or a pet bite, or of course, there's always smoking cessation, which is a big one, but pink eye, uh, fluoride supplements in areas that don't have enough fluoride in the water. I and mean, we could go on and on. There's so much opportunity for those low risk services. And then you have services that are prophylactic for the high-risk patients. So we have patients out there that we have to worry about having a suppressed immune system or you know being exposed to flu. So we treat prophylactically for influenza and HIV, PEP and PrEP programs. I mean, there's such a need for that kind of care and it makes easy access. And we're also battling, um, you know, stopping these pandemics and moving these disease states forward. We're wanting to to slow them down. So you think about COVID, COVID in and of itself, we'd like to go away, but it's not going away. And so being able to test and treat and prevent the, the further spread of COVID and also STIs, so sexually transmitted infections, I mean, having those in a pharmacy scenario allows for our patients to discreetly seek care and also be more honest maybe with you know their partners and and on, encourage them to also seek care so there's a lot of area for prophylactic therapy um, to high-risk populations and then we we can look at emergency therapy to remove the threat of patient health or safety if we don't dispense it so we talk about the the first thing that comes to mind of course is an albuterol inhaler all of us in the retail setting have had patients come in with exacerbation because they've lost or, or can't find their inhaler or their doctor's out of town. An EpiPen for allergies and not just for patients. We provide those for services and or clinics that may need them on hand. And then we could go on for hours about naloxone and the need, need for treatment of opiates and the amount of money that's available out there because we keep trying to fight this pandemic and or this epidemic of opioid overdose and where is the need for pharmacists nationally for stepping up and fighting again and again i like to refer to how much we have done for the vaccination rates you know they fought us and fought us to do it and then we started offering vaccinations and you know now we're we're making a big hit into the lack of patients you know getting their all of their vaccinations there was such a huge issue there previously and so adding hormone contraceptives made a big difference there also but i feel like naloxone is an area that we could be making a huge difference and and of course making those those services available and then the the area that i really like to focus on because i feel that in the us we have a huge need for patients being given the opportunity to own their disease state is gaps in patient care and and really affecting the the quality outcome of those patients that are in post-diagnostic, whether it be diabetes, whether it's diabetes prevention in patients that are at risk or or whether it's cardiovascular programs, the million heart program, hypertension, most of those patients, very few of them are maintaining their targets. Very few of them are hitting their goals. And so when we're talking about opportunities for care, the level of care of pharmacists, and there's so many studies out there that have proven that pharmacists are good at this and that they are actually preferred because of the patient relationship 
that allows us to offer services in post-diagnostic care and helping those patients reach their targets. And my personal experience in that area has been that the more I educate a patient, the more they own their disease states, the more they tend to hit their targets. And that's beneficial for everybody. So that's a good summary of like, um, I, th- I think a lot of people have heard a lot of those things, but you put it together really well. Um, a lot of services for low risk patients, but high need services for high risk patients, patient education, connections to in, in relationship to their chronic diseases. We've got Dr. Hibbert on the line. And Dr. Hibbard, maybe you could tag team off of that. What are some other things that we might not be thinking about that are opportunities in the community pharmacy that fit within the scope and reimbursement structure that we've been speaking about? Thank you, Dr. Rothworth. Well, I very much agree with Debbie's summary of what the types of services that we're seeing more and more common in community pharmacies and what healthcare is asking community pharmacies to step in and, and try to help. But I think when I think about this topic altogether when I, uh, and supporting these services, we can expand these services, make them available, make them within scope of practice. But what we've learned in my area is, is that uptick is lacking without sustainable reimbursement structures. So we encourage our billing departments, we encourage community pharmacists to think about things not in forms of what you can do, but how that fits into the greater scheme of how we can reimburse you for it. Many of them want to be reimbursed on the pharmacy side for these services, which is just not possible given the current landscape and how medical claims are billed. Most of them have our experts in NCPDP coding can tell you all about how the claim adjudicates on that end, but have, have fall short of being able to understand some of the basic concepts of medical billing and documentation. And then what states need to focus on that are protocol-driven like Oregon is, what the, is not being too truncated. A lot of these protocols kind of pigeonhole you. And when you think about all the additional things that pharmacists can do when they're engaging a patient under a test-to-treat protocol or independent prescribing protocol, they could tag on so many different screenings that are valuable to healthcare and code them and report them and even get reimbursed for them. One of the examples that we always hear is that they, pharmacists need training, need training, and these are advanced services. And they really aren't advanced in terms of training. I mean, it's not hard for a pharmacist to be able to have an escort be filled out and be reviewed and document that they reviewed the escort made the appropriate referrals, communicated back with the PCP, and report and bill those codes for some type of medical reimbursement. And even when we have a variety of things, this requires dedicated resources. You're going to need dedicated space. It is very challenging to incorporate this in part of the dispensing process, and it has to be a separate process altogether. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't dive into it or dabble into it. We've already integrated immunization services. That's a low-hanging fruit. Try to, and with vaccines for children being a known area where we need to actually penetrate more vaccinations in this population, particularly in my area in Oregon, we're encouraging pharmacies to actually enroll in that vaccines for children program. And those are largely reimbursed under the medical benefits just because of the nature of the program itself. So getting involved with vaccines for children may expose you to billing immunizations under the medical benefit. And then you can slowly integrate that. Maybe you bill more all your immunizations over the medical benefit as you become more comfortable. And as payers start to see that and accept that as a normal process for a community pharmacy. Some of the things that I think we're missing with the list that uh, Dr. Marchetti listed was how 
we have we have multiple examples in rural areas where pharmacies are also working with the local providers to fill unmet needs. We have embedded community pharmacies and clinics that split their time dispensing and managing small panels of uncontrolled diabetic and hypertension hypertensive patients, and they're being able to be credentialed, contracted with, and be reimbursed through the clinic side, not through the pharmacy side, but have some type of an arrangement with the, with the physical health providers at the clinic so that there's like some revenue sharing agreement. That can happen in a standalone clinic in a rural setting too. It's very possible, and I'm very excited to see what, how Idaho molds the practice of pharmacy where it could be a potential, there could be a possibility where there's a diabetes clinic or a hypertensive clinic. And we have such an access problem in these rural counties that they're sending these patients to be managed by the pharmacist for these disease states. And that's gonna be a challenge for a lot of the payers. We have to view pharmacists differently and view them like any physical health provider and be able to make sure that they're trained and at least capable of of accessing the resources needed to be able to pull that off in a sustainable way. Dr. Hibbert, how about, you mentioned a couple other things. How about, I often get asked questions about how to bill for long-acting injectable service and how that could tag into that. Can you speak a little bit to your experience on that? I'm sure that some listeners on this podcast would be curious on what your thoughts are on that. I think injectable services are a low-hanging fruit for most community pharmacies. We saw that throughout the pandemic where Services that were typically get, you know, administered by nurses or MAs in the clinic just had to be unstaffed. There was just too much demand with COVID throughout the pandemic for those clinics to continue to do B12 injections or even in-office testosterone injections or GLP-1 injections. Some people have a fear of needles and come in on a weekly, come in every now and then, every day sometimes (laughs) to get their GLP-1 administered. And what was asked of these community pharmacists, particularly in the rural areas, was to fill that gap. How do you feel about having some of our patients who need to come in and have an injection once weekly or once monthly, have it at your pharmacy instead of in our clinic? Because we just cannot support that service. And there's a couple of examples of pharmacists doing that work for these clinics. And then, of course, the other answer is, well, how do we get paid for it? Well, that's a conversation that has to be had with the patient, with the local payer. Is that something that we can cover? What will they be willing to cover? So there was a lot of barriers where good intentions stop because the service can't be sustainable. And unfortunately, I saw a few of those opportunities for these community pharmacists dwindle because there just wasn't enough throughput for just injectable services. Well, maybe that's a good time to to pivot over. So we, we talked about services, COVID practice and whatnot. And before we get into barriers, about what what stops community pharmacies from doing this. Maybe we'd just do a quick check-in with Dr. Chomsky and Dr. Signa Martin. What is your feeling about the uptake in your states with the scope and regulatory changes? How many pharmacies are are doing this? And then we'll then we'll move that, we'll move into a discussion about why. This is Nikki Chopsky. I can speak a little bit to Idaho. So we actually did a study in 2019 to see how many pharmacists were implementing these services. And at that time, our rules had just gone through in 2018. So it was right out of the gate. And admittedly, uptake was slow at that point. But since then, it has gained quite a bit of steam. In fact, I'm starting to hear and see licenses come through at the Board of Pharmacy for pharmacies that are just straight up clinical. They're pharmacy clinics that are set up in communities to be a community pharmacy, but they have a 
you know, they have patient rooms where you can see patients and it's just based on clinical services. It is not embedded in primary health or primary care, I should say, or, you know, necessarily with any other provider. So we are starting to see that. I do think that the pharmacist underestimated their clinical services because they didn't think about or remember that every time they're involved in immunizing, that is actually prescribing. And so I think really our pharmacies were much, much higher than what the results ended up showing, but everyone sort of had the new skills or the new opportunity services on their minds when they were asked that question. So a lot of folks answered that they weren't helping yet, but we've had legislators testify when we've gone to committees to say that their constituents are reporting back that this is happening in their communities. We still see some folks that uptake's not strong everywhere, but this is not a mandate. It's an opportunity. And so we've asked people to implement it thoughtfully, to do it well, and for some folks, that does mean a change in their workflow. And so it's taken a little bit of time for folks to kind of work through that. But we are seeing uptake increase over time. And it's been, you know, we're on our fifth year. This summer, it'll be five years. Yeah. Those are all really positive to see the growth. Um, Dr. Sigmund, could you comment about Alaska and the uptake? I know those are relatively new changes, but what's your take on community pharmacies implementing those in Alaska and your experiences in Washington? As the other guests have said, it really is that implementation takes some time. And as you start getting some successes, the momentum does tend to grow. So we do have a handful of pharmacies all across Alaska, from Southeast Alaska to the interior that are working on the credentialing and contracting process right now. They have an EHR in place and they're just moving through that process, which that process alone takes some time. I'm hearing like nine, around nine months, even up to a year potentially to get through that entire process. So we know that's happening. And then there's a lot of interest from others around the state. We just had our annual convention a little bit less than a month ago, and we actually had an entire education track around billing as providers, billing as primary, you know, as a primary care provider, billing in the community setting. So there was a lot of interest around those education sessions and a lot of pharmacists that are really interested in providing kind of these new avenues and pathways to care. And because Alaska is so rural, we really need some of these innovative care models that pharmacists can provide. There are a lot of places where a pharmacy is the only healthcare center for many hundreds of miles even around. So this is something that's really needed and there really is a strong interest. So I'll be you know, interested to see, I think over the next couple of years, how that intake continues to um, progress. And then you also had actually asked about Washington. Washington, yeah. Yeah, and I know, I mean, similar, similar kind of story. It took these, passed that law in 2015 and it took some time to get the momentum building. And even um, when I left Washington, Last year, we were still in the process of supporting many of our independent pharmacies in onboarding with an EHR and going that through that credentialing and contracting process and, and something I'm sure they're still working on. Um, I know that COVID-19, as much as it was a detriment in many, many ways, it did provide this opportunity for pharmacies and especially our community pharmacies to kind of become these healthcare hubs in our communities where people knew they could go there for vaccines, they could go there for, for testing um, and other services, right? And that really also provided that opportunity for pharmacies to get more involved in providing those services, changing up their workflow and how they did some of these things, as well as onboarding to a medical EHR, the medical benefit billing. 
So you touched on even some barriers there. Maybe let's get specific. You're hearing workflow, we're hearing EHR, uh, we're hearing reimbursement. Maybe let's turn to Dr. Roscoe and, and get some exact, you know, let's let's talk about exact barriers or, or specific barriers that are common that are preventing community pharmacies from really jumping in and offering these services. And if we could articulate them into, you know, resource barriers and workflow barriers, and then maybe talk about you know, we've got the reimbursement, attitudinal barriers, and educational barriers. And let's maybe talk about those in that framework, and we'll turn to Dr. Marchetti and get her take on it as well. Yeah, thank you. There are quite a few different barriers. I think a lot of them, as you already mentioned, are what popped to the top of mind. There's some reimbursement barriers. There's just knowledge and familiarity with the process of medical billing. I'm not going to dive into those too much because Right now, I'm. we've talked about them a little bit, and I think those are becoming less, but I will call out, again, the lack of Medicare B uh, recognition does create a barrier in that there's a subset of the population that are eligible for services or maybe some of the uh, population that need our services the most who simply can't access it through their insurance. We'd have to treat it differently, collect a payment from them, and that for a lot of community pharmacies or practices, they don't want to exclude a large subset of their population who may be resource constrained. So that is a barrier. Uh, but in general, Medicare Advantage plans, state Medicaid's commercial plans, there's a lot of movement in many states on getting those covered. I think some of the, as far as resources and workflow go on the resource and workflow side, if we think about any encounter you had with a medical practitioner personally recently, uh, generally you have someone who's rooming you, taking initial history or chief complaint, getting vital signs. It's not typically the medical provider themselves doing that. And while pharmacist scope of practice is advancing in a lot of states, a lot of times the pharmacy technician rules have lagged behind and are not keeping speed with the advancing clinical practice. So in many states, it's unclear if can a pharmacist have their technician or a technician assist uh, in clinical services? Can a pharmacist supervise a medical assistant uh, who, or rather an unlicensed individual? Can a, a nurse help uh, with the pharmacist practice? Can can the pharmacy or pharmacist employ a nurse? So a lot of questions there about that support staff to actually get to a reasonable capacity uh, to be a sustainable practice. And I think the biggest limitation for community pharmacies in particular, uh, Idaho and the several states that have followed suit with similar uh, independent authorities uh, following Idaho's implementation don't have the same barrier, but states like Oregon, where we have protocols or piecemeal authorities, this isn't going to work like vaccines in that you can just ask a pharmacist to, hey, stop those seven scripts that are in the queue right there. Uh, this person needs an encounter to determine you know, what their diabetes management should be. You can't just walk out of the pharmacy and have a full encounter. So that that's where if you don't have state authorities that are sufficient to have consistent flow of patients in, it, it's not really realistic to ask a pharmacist to stop and provide clinical services beyond maybe med admin or some screening, point of care screening. So that's really one of the biggest barriers for community pharmacies is having enough services they can offer that they can staff on a routine basis. And you really have to 
I'm, I'm a big advocate for having pharmacists who both staff dispensing and clinical and are fully trained and competent on both sides and can rotate between them. But whether you have pharmacists employed just performing clinical services there and some just performing dispensing or they, they mix, you need to be able to book time just for those clinical services on a routine basis. Interesting. Maybe we, uh, Dr. Marchetti, tag team off of that. How do you feel about resource barriers and workflow and reimbursement barriers as you see it, as you've implemented these programs in, in the community setting? Well, I can tell you, I believe the number one issue with all of this is the lack of national consistency across the board for pharmacist rights. But when we in a state like Idaho have started initiating these services, and I have done um, initiated a, a diabetes education recognition, it's recognized by the ADA as a service to our population in Pocatello, Idaho, as well as diabetes prevention and 20-something protocols. And we are offering those services and we're billing for those services. The ticket is, is that barrier that Dr. Rusko is talking about includes a, a typical pharmacy workflow. And the reality is, is that it's not going to work if we're trying to incorporate these services into a typical workflow. I know when I worked in retail pharmacy for 20 years, if someone came to me and told me I needed to do one more thing, I was going to go insane. And that overall scenario between trying to take care of your patients and the demands on you and, the, and of course, all of the other things happening as far as the extra efforts that are required behind that counter uh, you know, it, it just doesn't work. And so that is the reason why I believe Dr. Chopsky is starting to see more requests for pharmacist clinics and these services. And that's how we're operating in our diabetes center and, and our billing platform. Now, we're seeing the evolution of so many pharmacist uh, assistant platforms coming out, and they are all evolving. And Part of what we're doing here with Idaho State, of course, Dr. Wadsworth and myself are being very proactive working with some of these platforms because we we need a tool so that when this does become the way of practice across the whole U.S. for pharmacists, and I'm completely confident that that will happen. We just have to show that it can happen. And these platforms that offer the credentialing and the billing and the EHR, they will continue to evolve and they're coming so fast that they they will get it right. I think we can beat a lot of these barriers, whether you're talking about workflow, whether you're talking about EHR, you're talking about billing support. And of course, labor, I think we should probably let Dr. Chopsky talk a little bit more about the technician rights and how that can help in most pharmacies and pharmacy clinics. But we're evolving. And the, the key here is, is there's a lot coming down the path. We have to start doing it outside of a regular pharmacy PBM environment. It needs to be a direct billing component as a rendering provider on the behalf of the pharmacists. And I have full confidence that when they start seeing the outcomes, I, I know in my programs alone that these uh, the patients are so overwhelmed with how much better the care is they are. And it's not because providers are not competent. It's because they don't have time. And when you start seeing, when you start building these services and you're building them at a high quality they will come. The patients will come and we will evolve. Ticket here is that as far as the major barrier is ourselves and the practice of pharmacy. Well, then maybe that's a good a good pivot too here because there are other barriers, not just in the resources. And I think you guys have done a good job about highlighting the resources 
pharmacies, community pharmacies typically do not have an electronic health record. They don't have a billing department. They don't have a credentialing department. And those things, if you're not familiar with them and you don't have the background in them, they can be quite difficult to overcome because you're totally illiterate. And uh, one of the things we found as we've um, helped to implement some of these is we need to educate our pharmacists and our students to be familiar with medical billing just in general, to have a basic literacy and what does it mean to have an, what is an evaluation and management code? What does credentialing and contracting mean? We, on the dispensing side and community, we know what PCN numbers are and bin numbers, and we know how to bill the medical benefit. But uh, traditionally, we have been totally illiterate with the medical benefit, and that has been a barrier. But I want to pivot to the attitudinal barriers, and maybe we could get Dr. Signa Martin involved and maybe Dr. Hibbard. Let's talk, Signa Martin, could you, could you talk about the barriers, attitudinal barriers with pharmacists as we've seen this evolve into the community? And then Dr. Hibbard, maybe you could touch on the expectations of patients and that being a barrier that needs to be addressed. Yeah, definitely. I think you know, there are both encounters I've had with many pharmacists, as well as there's some research data and survey data out there that shows that pharmacist attitudes kind of cross the entire spectrum on this issue. But there are a lot of pharmacists who are very interested in be becoming this kind of provider in the community setting. Um, and I think it's those providers, those pharmacists who are excited about it and ready to take it on that are the ones that are going to continue to move us into the future. We know that, I mean, dispensing is a role that pharmacists have always played and will always continue to play. But as pharmacist roles continue to evolve, it's not necessarily the primary role of pharmacists in the future. And it's these pharmacists that are the ones that are willing to take on um, some of these new and exciting frontiers that are the ones that are going to continue to advance our profession. And really, you were just speaking to the education component and I do actually, Dr. Marchetti and I get to teach a class at Idaho State University and University of Alaska Anchorage here to our doctor of pharmacy students. And we spend a lot of time talking about billing and introducing them to these ideas and have them work through a business plan that really is focused on patient care services um, and trying to start them now, like changing their minds about what pharmacist roles look like um, now and in the future, because that will be um, that attitudinal barrier you were just talking about will be incredibly important to overcome as we continue to advance. Yeah, changing expectations. And as workflows change, I think some of those expectations or guarded you know, guarded attitudes we come across will start to fade away as they see the pathway forward. And maybe Dr. Hibbard, could you speak a little bit about patient expectations and what they do expect from a community pharmacy and what they, how do we address that so that they view the pharmacy as a healthcare center and a resource? Well, I think patients' expectations vary. Uh, it's very interesting to see a robust community pharmacy um, providing clinical services versus that of a embedded clinical pharmacist in primary care, where we have multiple examples where you know, patients are willing to pay anything to come back and see the clinical pharmacist in primary care. But for whatever reason, when the same service is being provided as the community pharmacy, they expect it to be free. 
or something that's low what the typically cost when they have a deductible and, and see one of their uh, you know, physical, other physical health providers. And I think that's been a, a rather slow education piece is that when you're seeing a pharmacist in the community, you're seeing them, they're billing the same codes for the same service that is provided as an outpatient office visit or evaluation and management code and the expectations that they have to communicate and educate their their patients when they come and see them is that there will be a copay. This is very similar to you're going to an urgent care or primary care. You're just coming here today instead of there to get those services. And that stuff has to be kind of built into your workflow at the community part. You have to start thinking about like, okay, you know, FYI, if we're billing your insurance or maybe a copay, we maybe have to collect the copay. That might not be paid immediately or known immediately like it is for a pharmacy claim. So you might have to build time for claim reconciliation process to see that to collect copayments or even non-paid services at times. And we're not very built that way in pharmacy to think about that because we're used to being the highly accessible provider that's going to even get free medical advice, but free medical advice comes with liability and other other health professionals have addressed that. And we need to address that here in the pharmacy community now. Otherwise, we may be a danger to ourselves. Yeah. So we'll see that evolving as we see more and more pharmacies doing those things. And I maybe I, it's akin to vaccines. When vaccines were started, we didn't really think of pharmacy first. And now, uh, years and years later, you think of vaccine and and most people go, oh, yeah, I got the pharmacy. You know? And I think um, that's the kind of thing that will happen as the uptake increases. And I think as pharmacists adopt that, that standpoint as a healthcare provider and regard themselves as such and the services that they offer as such, the community will then begin to accept that. We're running on time here, but I wanted to just hear a few success stories. And, and I wanted to go around Robin here. And, and um, I think we had Dr. Chopsky. If, do you have any success stories that you could share in Idaho that, that stand out quickly? Gosh, there's a, there's so many to choose from, honestly. But yeah, we've seen pharmacists be able to take care of patients who are willing to, uh, especially early on, willing to pay cash um, for the services and come in. And uh, even if they tested negative and didn't walk out with a, a Tamiflu type script or a, a something for the flu or something for strep, they uh, were happy to know that they were negative and they were happy to still go get the uh, products, the over-the-counter products that are on, you know, the aisle uh, just outside the pharmacy. And so we've seen a lot of uh, pharmacists be able to offer those kinds of services and, and expand. And particularly, you know, I hear rural a lot. I hear remote, the term frontier. You know, we have a lot of land, not as much as Alaska, but we have a lot of land like that as well. And um, particularly in those areas, those uh, providers, pharmacists are figuring out ways in those small communities to really help. And, you know, I've heard everything from, you know, there was a, a traveler, a tourist coming through and they ended up with an uncomplicated UTI and they went into a pharmacy and were able to get help right there on the spot. And it meant so much to them that their vacation wasn't ruined, that they, you know, rode in and told us about it. And so we've had, you know, I, we could go on and on. There's a lot of stories of positive impact that we've had. So it's been great. Dr. Marchetti, any a quick uh, success story that you could share. And then I wanted to pivot to Alaska too. And just here, I know there's a few success stories there that are worth mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the success falls in when your patients start being your best referral source. 
And so whether it be um, doing some of these services that, you know, writing prescriptions for patients, we have a lot of people that come in and say, hey, someone told me. And of course, with our diabetes programs, we have incorporated and made them so they're a convenience for physicians. And although our patients are our number one resource to keep those classes full, since incorporating, you know, we wrote prescription pads, I want people to be creative. You want to make it easy for a provider to use you because, you know, when they're on a, in a situation where they're trying to run a patient through quickly and they just got diagnosis with prediabetes, you know, the number one treatment for that happens to be diabetes prevention, having a prescription pad sitting in front of them and that prescription pad meets all the requirements for referring the patient. And that comes to your pharmacy. I mean, we wrote all of those and, and the success by just stepping out of our comfort zone and stepping into seeing what works best, um, whether it be for the provider, for the patients. And the successes are huge. I mean, they just are. And, and I wish that all pharmacists everywhere could see the demand and the need for their presence in, in patient care. Yeah, excellent. Dr. Signa Martin, you want to share an Alaska story? Yeah, definitely. Um, I also have a Washington story I'd love to share if I have a few minutes. But, you know, in Alaska, one of our biggest success stories comes out of the Kenai Peninsula, um, the Soldatna Professional Pharmacy. It's no surprise that um, the person who owns this pharmacy, who has huge advocate um, and has a lot of foresight, he actually had got his pharmacy set up on an EHR and medical billing platform long before we passed House Bill 145 and even before COVID. So that gave them a huge advantage to create these sustainable services in the community. And they currently offer diabetes specialized care, as well as um, MTM services, COVID-19 testing, and several other services. So um, that's been amazing. And actually, the person who owns that pharmacy, he just was elected to the State House of Representatives in Alaska. So we're really lucky to have a pharmacist in our state legislature um, who understands how valuable pharmacists are um, to providing you know, care to our communities. And then I want to share one quick story. One of my favorite stories out of Washington State was actually from during the big COVID-19 Delta variant surge in the summer, late summer and fall of 2021. And our hospitals and emergency departments were just completely full and overflowing with COVID patients. We had at the time the monoclonal antibodies available for patients at high risk of severe disease and death, but we needed alternative administration sites to ensure access um, for patients and also to ease the burden on our hospital. So our state medical countermeasures team reached out to the pharmacy association to see if we could help find and help set up some of these alternative sites. So I started reaching out to our community pharmacies. Um, We developed a treatment protocol and workflow plan to help with implementation. And pharmacies got really creative with setting up spaces for COVID positive patients, both for the administration, as well as the hour long observation period after the administration. Um, We saw pharmacies doing really creative things, setting up large tents and other things like that. And then a pharmacy where I actually staffed part-time as a pharmacist, uh, Duval Family Drugs, we actually took over an empty medical office space in the building that's right next to the pharmacy. And we were able to see up to four patients at a time over there, which was great. 
Um, and so pharmacies that already had an EHR medical billing solution in place were the ones that were most easily able to just like flip the switch and start providing the service in a sustainable way. Because as you can imagine, it takes a lot of manpower, so to speak, to make some of this happen. So just lots of ways I think that pharmacies, pharmacists have been able to step up as well as technicians and, and help in lots of different situations. Fantastic examples. I do want to give a chance to Dr. Roscoe and Dr. Hibbert, do you guys have a, so we end on a super positive note, something to highlight about Oregon and a notable accomplishment there? Yeah, actually, I'm going to pull from a similar example uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, At the time, I was living in a small coastal community in southern Oregon on the coast. And uh, same thing, there was a, a need to keep patients out of the hospital, and we did not have providers who were available. I think there was one or two days a week for an hour or so that the hospital was able to give a couple of doses of the monoclonal antibodies. So working with the local independent pharmacy there, they had not been providing clinical services. We very rapidly set up and established a EHR platform that had integrated billing, uh, that you would do the billing yourself. So it wasn't a full service. It was about 30 bucks a month per provider. And we set up mobile in-home COVID antibody administration. So we would send a pharmacist out to the patient's home. They're sick. We A lot of the patients in this rural community didn't have good transportation and couldn't get back to another location. This also in the community kept patients who were COVID positive isolated uh, and away from other susceptible patients. So we sent pharmacists out, they would administer in the patient home, do the monitoring, and we successfully build insurances uh, very rapidly through the EMR that we had just set up, documented, and then uh, completed those billings. And that was a really good resource for this community that only had one other provider at the time doing any form of the antibodies. Fantastic. That's a wonderful example. Had such a huge impact too. Well, Tell you what, uh, since we're we're closing on time, I want to thank everybody today for participating and for joining us. I think uh, to our listeners, I think you heard something, hopefully that would be helpful to you, but the ingredients for a successful clinical pharmacy practice in the community really appears to be around scope of practice and reimbursement and a combination of skills and clinical pharmacy and business management and workflow good communication coupled with an unusually strong professional self-image. I think our panelists today have demonstrated all of those qualities, which is why they've been so successful in moving forward these services in the community. We want to thank them for joining us today. If you haven't before, we encourage you all to visit the ASHP's Community Pharmacy Practitioners website at ashp.org backslash SCPP. In it, you can find member-only content such as Community Pharmacy Resource Center, ASHP's patient-focused self-medication site, and more. Thanks again for joining us in this episode of Community Pharmacy Podcast, and thank you so much to our panelists. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.